Steve and I analyze vintage tactics on episode 32 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 32 of So Many Insane Plays, where Steve and I discuss common vintage tactics and reveal the subtle nuances of critical vintage plays. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, folks. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at ManyInsanePlays, email us at SoManyInsanePlaysPodcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. For announcements today, there are two January tournaments coming up. Eudaimonia on January 4 on the West Coast. Team Sirius Open in Columbus on January 18. We'll have links to both of those in the show notes. Steve, what about your recent articles? No new articles, just um, a bunch of old articles were converted to free articles. And most of them were set reviews, but some of them were tournament reports. And I still think they're worth looking at. I think they're uh, actually great fun to read through and look at because for the set reviews, it's fun to see what my predictions were. Um, and it's also interesting to see sort of why I thought cards would be playable that ultimately were or weren't. Um, and it's also fun to, to think about what, what makes a card vintage playable. And in terms of the tournament reports, there's a lot of um, line and play analysis and in-game decision analysis that's I think worth looking at. As long as people don't go back and look at our discussion on Death Rite Shaman, I think it'll be fine. <laughs> well, you, you'll actually appreciate my uh, discussion of Death Rite Shaman because I definitely predicted it would be playable. All right. Our topic today comes from a listener who wrote us in with an interesting request, and I'm quoting from their email. I really enjoy the times when you guys debate and talk about the thought process behind the decision, usually only during scenarios, because I find it most valuable. I've learned the most when you go into the whys of cards, not just the hows. I'm wondering if it wouldn't be an interesting exercise to maybe pick a vintage card and go over some of the thought processes behind using it. I'm amazed how many times I see vampiric tutors during the wrong phase or unthoughtful use of cards like Brainstorm. Steve, when this came in, you really latched onto this idea immediately, and I agree. I think this is a great exercise for us, and it's a nice variation on the scenarios kind of discussion that we like to have. Yeah, I think it's going to be great fun. I hope our listeners enjoy it as well. Well, where would you like to begin then? Well, let's start with land drops. Um, you know, a, a couple years ago, I, I gave uh, some vintage lessons, which was really nothing more than just um, having people who wanted me to help teach them vintage log on to Magic Workstation and Skype, and I would, um, you know, just teach them. And I, you know, sometimes help people out and watch them play. And one of the things that I do is I have them play their hand face up while I play, you know, a, a gauntlet deck with them. And that allows me to sort of encode everything that they're doing and think about what their lines of play are as they are. And then at the end of the game or even in the middle of the game, I can sort of evaluate what they're doing wrong or what they can improve upon. And the two biggest things I think that I saw Novice vintage players do wrong were uh, are both going to be discussed in our uh, in our podcast today. But the, the first one is really missequencing land drops. 
Um, and land drops are deceptively difficult because land drops are a decision, an irrevocable decision that you make in the course of a game. And making the wrong one can lead directly to a game loss. But but the thing that's that's difficult about the, the tricky thing about land drops, and especially making the wrong land drop, is it's usually never the thing that you notice, or it's rarely the thing that you notice. And yet, uh, because it's just never the salient feature of a game, usually you, you you notice the plays that your opponents made, or what you the mistakes you made in terms of not playing a spell or tutoring for the wrong card. But it, you can usually draw a direct line to the wrong land drop or the wrong use of a land to a game loss. So I thought I this would, would be a wonderful topic. I think that the importance of the land drop choices is amplified to the extreme in vintage due to an effect that we've observed and many people have multiple times in the past, which is that vintage games may be an uh, average length in a number of turns of what's the metric, Steve? Four, four and a half turns? Yeah, probably closer to five these days, but five turns per game on average per player. And that amount of time is increasing, I think we've observed lately. But for vintage, the number of decisions per turn is very dense, especially in the early turns. And we can measure time in Magic in terms of game turns, which is one way to do it. But we've talked many times in the past about measuring it by choices made. And when there are compressed, uh, an increased amount of choices made inside the early compressed turns then the importance of land drops as a ratio of game choices is possibly the highest in vintage right. of any other magic format. Right. Another so way you're committing more of your game's time, virtual time, to each land choice. Right. The impact of each land drop is is greater in vintage than probably any other format because there are fewer because more decisions. Basically, vintage has more decisions per turn than any other, any other format. I don't think that would be contested, and you are basically limited to one land drop per turn. So there are fewer turns, but more decisions per turn, which means that each land drop is more consequential. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. So, so, so um, you know, thinking about, you know, and I've, I think the thing is, when new players are playing Vintage, they're thinking about so many things. They're thinking about, how do I play all these spells? When do I play all these spells? And they're not really thinking a lot about the land drops. I think the number one lesson I would suggest is, I think, each land you play should be as carefully thought through as every spell you play. And when you open a hand that has three lands, you should be thinking very carefully about which of those three lands you play first, which you plan to play second, and which you plan to play third, and why. And have a clear understanding of why. And how those choices play into your game plan for a given matchup. Right. Because that's critical. You have to know how you're going to win a game and what lands are going to be the things that contribute to your victory as opposed to what lands might be ephemeral due to things like wasteland, etc., and what lands might be the last one you play that finishes a sequence. Right, right. And, and part of it is you don't really know. A lot of times when you're about to make your first land drop, you don't know what you're facing. And so you have to make a decision that is that, that will allow you to, to maximize the spell, maximize the amount of the number of plays you have in your hand while reducing the risk that your opponent might try to disrupt those plays by attacking your mana base. And those are, t- those are two different things you have to balance against each other that are very tricky. Well, let's talk about one of the simplest examples of that, I think, to start with then, which is the simple tension, the very common tension of fetch lands in a blue-based deck versus dual lands right. and opening hands that, say, have representation of both. Yep. So let's let's say you start with an example in which you have an opening hand. Let's just ignore the contents of the hand except for the lands, right, at the moment. Assume that you have um, a, a basic land, say an island, 
a dual land and a fetch land? You know, what are the sort of basic rules of thumb for dropping those lands? I think omnipresent in vintage is your opponent's wastelands. Now, it's not in every archetype, of course, not in every matchup, but you have to, especially against an unknown opponent at the beginning of an event or around, you have to assume that that is a possibility. And whatever sequence you begin has to at least be able to succeed in fight through a wasteland or yeah. simply be immune to it, right. which is why so many blue-based control decks run at least one basic island right. and, and, and fetch lands. And one of those, two of the lands in your opening hand are, are at least for the time being, immune to wasteland, the exactly. fetch land and the island. But the question is sometimes, which do you play first? And you have to have in mind, let's say that you assume your opponent has one wasteland. What configuration of two lands might you be left with that would allow you to execute your right. ultimate plan? Right. So if you're, if the dual land you have is key for multiple spells in your deck, let's say you're Grixis and you've got an underground sea to go with your fetch land. Yeah. Well, that underground sea is going to execute many plans for such a deck. And so you could plan for a future where you have access to that underground sea as your third land drop. Right. Or but, but alternatively, t- yeah, it depends on the rest of your hand because you may not immediately have any use for colored mana other than blue. And that means that you could, in theory, since you have a relatively well-protected mana base with those three lands from Wasteland, I mean, you could lead out with Underground Sea and hope to draw your opponent into a bad tempo play with a Wasteland, which we're going to talk more about later. Yeah, you know, there there are, there can definitely be some tensions. I mean, so I'll just throw two two tensions in there. They, they, uh, or rather, I'll throw two examples that can create some tensions. One is that... You know, generally a goal of blue decks is sometimes to, to get to mana drain in the early game, which means that you, you want to make a play that ensures your first land isn't wastelanded, so you can get, you can get your second land into play and use mana drain. Um, but there may be a tension in that you also may have a card, say, like Dark Confidant, that you want to play early as well. And if this can become a real problem, if your opening hand is, say, a Volcanic Island, Fetchland Island. Uh, basic island being the third land because mm-hmm. you you may you know first of all you have to decide whether you hold up the mana drain or whether you play the dark confidant but but in, in underlying that and informing it is whether you know you're compelled to fetch out the underground sea uh and and when you do that um and so there's a tension there because you have you know goals that could interfere with each other um a related tension might be what if you have um say you know, and this this is like with your keeper deck, Kevin, and we can discuss both of these examples. But you might have an, an abrupt decay in hand, and you have, say, um, a basic land that does not cast the abrupt decay, and you have a dual land that can help you cast it, and a fetch land which you'll need to fetch. In that case, does that does that does the presence of abrupt decay in your hand mitigate against playing the basic land first and towards playing the the, the fetch land? These are these are tricky things that that really need to be thought through, and I think we can maybe help you come up with some rules of thumb thinking them through right now. I yes, the answer to your question in short is yes. The fetch land becomes maximally useful in defending against wasteland, keeping all possible options open as well as allowing for the possible turn to abrupt decay, which is the right play in a number of matchups against Oath, against so, certain so, kinds of workshops, against Bob's, that kind of thing. Well, let me just pose that. So, so supposing the first play you make is Polluted Delta, um, and your opponent doesn't really represent anything that you would have with abrupt decay, you would be able to target with abrupt decay, 
Would you play the dual land that will allow you to play Abrupt Decay next, or would you play your basic land? Assuming you have a, just um, you have Abrupt Decay in hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say the best example of what I think you're getting at is if my opponent doesn't play a spell on their first turn. If they play just a fetch land as well, or a fetch land and a mox and they don't cast a spell, I would be very likely in that scenario to simply play the Underground Sea, but not necessarily for the reason you mentioned. If my opponent plays nothing that indicates Wasteland, or that is to say they make a play that actively indicates against Wasteland, then I'm immediately shifting gears into maximum flexibility. So the island has become far less important as soon as my opponent plays, say, uh, Scalding Tarn Go, and the maximum flexibility of the Underground Sea becomes paramount. There are still some exceptions to that. It could be Rug Delver that didn't have a one a first turn drop. It could be Bugfish again, right. no first turn drop. So there are still there are still dangers. Yeah, it could be a Keeper Mirror as well. It, it, yeah, or it could, be, it could be Grixis Control. Yeah, or Land Still. So there are still yeah, it's not a sure thing. But as soon as my read on an opponent shifts away from Wasteland, I immediately focus on flexibility. So what about the example of uh, the, the hand in which Abrupt Decay is not a consideration, but Mana Drain and Dark Compadon are, are both in hand? Would you lead with the fetch land or lead with the basic? And you're saying I have Island Fetch Volcanic Island? Yeah. In that case, I, more often than not, I believe I would lead with the fetch land. There are, it covers so many of the bases, meaning it leaves you open to... Defending against Wasteland and ramping sure. up to turn two Mana Drain if that's what you need, and it and leaves you open to the other. And it protects you from Strip And it protects you against Strip Mine. I, I'd like to make a, an asterisk about Strip Mine. There are very narrow cases where you are protected against Wasteland but not against Strip Mine. Yes. And even though you are very conscious of playing against Wasteland, there are certain times when you can gain tiny percentage points by also playing around Strip Mine. And so yes. playing playing turn one island when you have, say, a basic fetch and a duel in hand, playing turn one island is, I think, very rarely correct. Yeah. Unless yeah, unless th- unless there's a one mana spell that you might need to play on your opponent's turn, like say a spell pierce, right. and you don't want to fetch to expose a dual land to do it. So right. There, right. these so are have, there's tensions for everything. If you have a vampiric tutor, a brainstorm, a preordain, or a spell pierce or flusher storm, often the play, right play will be spell uh, will be basic island. Another consideration is if the, the, the basic island is often superior if your opponent is playing workshops and has tangle wires. Mm, fair, a very fair point. You mentioned a common tactic for Ludex is leading up to Mana Drain, but against Wasteland-based decks, much of the time that's a workshop deck as well. And simply building up to a maximal count of mana is also an inherent goal in that in such a matchup, Mana Drain notwithstanding. So in such a matchup, the notion you would almost always try to sequence as as Island and Fetch first and right. saving any wasteable land for the absolute last moment you can play it. Right, right. I think I think one of the most central tensions, though, and I tried to bring this into focus early on in this discussion, is this tension between developing a safe mana base and maximizing your ability or capacity to play spells that you either have in hand or might draw. And, and both of those matter, so that... You know, oftentimes I found that one of the mistakes I've seen players make is they'll fetch out lands simply servicing cards they have in hand without thinking about the fact that there are cards in their deck. So, for example, I've seen someone in 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 these these lessons fetch out, say, a, a duplicate dual land of one they already have in play, not realizing that they needed to get a different one because they might 
they might draw, say, say they drew it, they played it fetch for a duplicate underground C when they might draw a red card, but they weren't thinking about that. But the, but the tension that I want to go back to that I introduced first is, again is this tension between um, spells you might, uh, you know, developing a safe mana base that's protected, insulated at least to some extent from wasteland from wastelands, and yet being able to play spells in, in hand. So a really good example might be the the, the danger in playing a turn one fetch land instead of a basic island when you really need that fetch land later, say turn three or later, to play a spell in your hand that you can't otherwise cast without it. So I think a good example of that would be Drug Delver. There are so many opportunities in that deck to play a Delver on turn one, but then in the mid-game, turns three and four, you absolutely need to cast a Lightning Bolt or for Flashback and Ancient Grudge. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And in that case, you really... You either want to play the basic, or you need to play a, a fetch land that can that can find a basic island immediately. That's a really good one. Yeah, I think that brinksmanship that you refer to is really the the lesson here. You should skirt as close as you can to the line of maximal safety because wasteland is omnipresent in the format, while still keeping your necessary options open. Right. And it sounds perhaps over simple to say it that bluntly. I think. But so many players, as you said, will... Yeah, and and it's easy to miss sequence. When you have, you know, these lands in hand, you know, sometimes people will make the right first play and then screw up the second play, you know? They'll they'll play the the fetch land and then... Or or they'll play the basic island, but then they'll play the dual land on turn two instead of the fetch land. And and their rationale often is, well, I want to hold the fetch land because I don't know what I might draw, so I want to make sure I'm able to, you know, use it to play anything I might draw. But that's that. If you just think ahead, further ahead, you know, then then you can just make the right play in advance. Um, another aspect of of this that I've um, seen a lot uh, come up a lot in terms of the kinds of errors that new players make or even intermediate players is they'll fetch at the wrong the wrong times. Um, so Kevin, do you have any sort of rules of thumb about when you fetch? That's a very interesting one. There are a hun- there are hundreds of tensions that get created with when you fetch. Uh, one of them is simply giving your opponent access to a period of a brief period of time where you have less mana than you normally would. Uh, the notion of a player playing spells in response to a fetch land activation should be should be well understood, I think, for any eternal players, vintage, modern, legacy. This so in the early turns of vintage, as we alluded to, when mana is so tight. The notion that you would simply play a fetch land on turn one, which we've discussed as, a, as an option, but then break it on your opponent's end step to play an instant, <laughs> and then your opponent breaks their fetch land that they played on turn one also and plays Ancestral Recall in response, and then you look at that yeah. spell pierce in your hand and you, you know, say, what have, what have I done? Yes. So uh, obviously you could point out that they would have been able to Ancestral after you played a spell anyway, but the, the point is is there there are many possible early game scenarios where you limit yourself by fetching at an inappropriate time when you really did have a better use for your so mana. Let, let's talk about that. So a, a really good example would be, let's say you're on the play and you play turn one fetch land, and they play a fetch land and pass, and you want to play, let's say, just brainstorm. But I've been in that situation countless times, and I never fetch there. 
I usually wait either until I usually I usually wait until my next main phase when I play my second land to fetch. That's usually the right time, but mm-hmm. I've seen people make that mistake. The other time is sometimes I will do it in my upkeep if I want them to go for it in my upkeep because say I have a mental misstep in my hand. So when I fetch depends a lot on the kinds of cards I have in my hand as well in that situation. I yeah, that takes a holistic view of the game in terms of if if your opponent has that kind of effect, ancestral recall being a common and backbreaking example, you being the proactive player can indirectly manipulate when they go for it. Yeah. And it's a very powerful position to be in. Well, I, I think one question, though, about Fetchlands is, in, in years ago, when Fetchlands first came out, people started crunching the numbers and try to figure out what is the value of thinning. And people, I think, pretty quickly discovered that at least on a turn-to-turn basis, thinning immediately has pretty low value. And And people also discovered very quickly that the shuffle effects are very powerful. So how do you think about, Kevin, shuffling versus thinning? I do not consider thinning at all. It is never on my mind when I'm activating a fetch land. And I can say in earnest that in the last dozen vintage tournaments I've played, I've never fetched just to thin. (laughs) The shuffling aspect, though, however, is on the opposite end of the spectrum. The shuffling aspect of a fetch land is akin to almost half of a spell's worth of an effect in Vintage. Mm. And, And I have... I have kept fetch lands in my hand after a Jace activation with Brainstorm, for example. I've kept fetch lands in my hand and played them having no fetchable lands in my deck because it is still a zero mana shuffle effect that has a part of a spell's worth of value. So I think that's a, a broad spectrum from entirely useless to worth more than just a land in terms of the range you've just defined. Right, right. When I look at fetch lands, when I'm playing a blue-based control deck, especially one with Jace, but in general, one with Tutors and Brainstorm, when I look at those lands, I view them as almost like split cards. This is a split card <laughs> that goes and gets me a mana of color I need and also shuffles. Yeah. I mean, there's so many effects that, you know, when you ponder, brainstorm, and jaces, the, the shuffle really does matter. It's really valuable. So one thing... Well, it, I just say I'll just put my opinion out there. I actually do value the, the thinning, and and I value it. I, I understand the math. I know that it has very 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 low value, but the way that I view it is I view it as a cumulative thing. This matters very little, but it matters over the course of a game, and and I think the the cumulative effect is actually non-trivial. Although in the individual any individual decision in the moment is is fairly trivial. The cumulative effect of that thinning, especially if you have two or three fetch lands, you know, in sequence, they, by if, if the game goes long, the cumulative effect by turn seven or eight can be actually quite profound. Um, I think that you could manufacture a scenario that I haven't been in lately, but you could manufacture one where I could see that you yeah. you you get into turn two or three of a matchup, or it's it's post sideboard, and you know that the games are going to go for a dozen turns or more. And you know your opponent doesn't have wasteland, and you know you're going to get time to develop. Perhaps I could just see. Perhaps you would yeah. be more aggressive early on, but well, keeping all the other pitfalls well, in mind. Where I was going to go is is that I tend to fetch out 
all I usually try and keep just one fetch land in play just as because you don't know when you're getting because you don't basically I'm usually preparing for when I draw brainstorm so if I have an additional fetch land I usually try and keep that in play unused for that purpose and there are actually other reasons to keep fetch lands in play another good reason to keep a fetch land in play is if your opponent is playing Jace and they start trying to fate seal you and conversely if you draw your Jace because every fetch land that you activate and turns that you're brainstorming with it is exactly your point about it's a source of virtual card advantage it's a half exactly yeah um and so i think that um you know i sometimes walk by people who have like three or four fetch lands in play like a brian de mars or whatever and i'm scratching my head why haven't you you know and i think it has to do with the people sometimes just value the, the, the you know that the, the the thinning differently than i do i think i i slightly value that more than others um and i and I don't really feel like I need to have multiple shuffle effects at any, any given point. I think it's interesting that you that you asked me about the thinning, and, and I said that I don't consider it at all. But now that I think about it, I do consider the inverse of the thinning. So I do consider it. And I'll tell you, rarely when it matters is when you're playing with and against Landstill. When you're playing either against Landstill or with Landstill in both cases, fetch lands in my experience, last their absolute longest in those kind of matchups. <laughs> because when you're playing something like Grixis Control, yeah. you're at a disadvantage already in that matchup. But every land that you draw is yeah. a big value in that matchup. And right. so I can see getting into the mid-game and having three fetch lands laid out right. and, and protecting them and, and treating them like gold because you do <laughs> not want to thin lands out of your deck. You want to draw as many as you can. Right, right. So I guess the inverse is true. I do value the thinning and avoid it in certain matchups. Yeah, you know, I think what, what this discussion just so far has illustrated is that there are so many considerations to think about, about sequencing and about when timing fetch lands. But there's also... A, a, a whole host of specialized land that we haven't even really brought into the conversation yet besides wasteland that you might have. And those lands might be unrestricted lands like, like wasteland or probably more likely in recent years, um, city of brass or cavern of souls or forbidden orchard. Um, and how do you interface those lands with these other more common lands like dual lands or fetch lands or, um, or basics. Um, and, and we haven't even touched on the, the, what happens if you draw, say, multiple duels? How do you sequence the duels? Um, I want to touch on the whole uh, Cavern of Souls, Library of Alexandria, those unique lands that have spell-like effects, because I think it's important, the way I mentioned treating fetch lands as pseudo-spells, I think it's important to treat those lands as pseudo-spells and consider them as such. You, when it's Cavern of Souls, for example, you want to get that spell-like effect out of it at the right time. If you're playing, say, humans against a control deck that doesn't have wastelands, then you want to run out Cavern of Souls almost at your earliest opportunity because you can amortize the spell-like effect over a number of turns. But if you're playing a deck like Bomberman that has a couple of caverns for a specific purpose, you want to hold those to the point where you cast that Salvagers or that Dark Confidant uncounterably when you need to. So I think it's important to consider those special lands and their spell-like capabilities and maximize the number of times or the key applications of them. That's fascinating. 
library sort of goes without saying. You want to play library when you're going to be able to immediately activate it. Yeah. And sometimes that means playing it or holding it, I mean. And sometimes that means playing it in a situation where you know you have to wait a turn, which is a risk. And and I think anyone who's played with library knows that feeling of not wanting to play a spell even though you kind of need to. But just making sure to plan ahead. I think the long-term message in a lot of these cases is plan ahead. Have a plan for how the next few turns will go. Right. Possibly longer than a few turns, but at least have an idea. Why am I playing this land now? What's the board state going to look like three turns from now because I'm making this choice? Yeah, I think that's I think that's critical, and I think um, that you you also part of implicit in what you said is thinking about not just planning ahead, but thinking about what's most important. So in a deck where you want to run out the cavern out there immediately and start using it, it might not be, it's not a precious resource for you. It doesn't mm-hmm. have the sort of like the, you know, the overmaster effect on your creature to protect, you know, to shield your, to shield your, your, um, your threat. And, and you can think about that in, in other ways. So, you know, a Forbidden Orchard's role in an oath deck is, yes, to regenerate mana, but also to trigger the oath. Um, and it's something you might want to throw out there early because you can generate the creature and let it go away to wasteland. You might not need it to cast every spell in your deck. It might not even be optimal to cast every spell in your deck. Um, and in some ways, the presence of having given your opponent a creature so early in a game can create tension for them and, yeah. and distract their resources from dealing with that creature in addition to whatever you might be doing after that. Yeah. Um, let's see, where did I want to go with that? There was something. Oh, yeah, I remember. Um, one thing that, um, that, that I see players do a lot is they'll often play their most precious resource. They'll expose their most precious resource to Wastelands first instead of thinking about the fact that, let's go back to the Grixis control and let's say your opening hand is instead of fetch land, dual land, island. What if it's island, dual land, dual land? And suppose you have Mana Drain in your hand, but you don't have the Dark Compton on. Uh, I would recommend playing Island first, then Volcanic Island, then Underground Sea. That way, because you, you really don't know whether your opponent has a Wasteland after their first turn. You, d- you generally don't know until after their second and third turn w- with a higher degree of probability. So I would say run out the Volcanic Island first, see if that gets Wastelanded, and, and probably actually hold just hold the, the Underground Sea at that point. That's a, that's a thing we haven't mentioned yet, is that it's perfectly legitimate to simply not play a land. But that is always an option, to just keep it in your hand. Absolutely. Especially relevant with something like Cavern, something like Library, mm-hmm. something like Academy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is you know, yeah. It's, you know, you mentioned City of Brass, and I think City of Brass especially my recent experience with it at Champs, really talks about the scarcity of resources and how precious one is to the extreme. Because in a deck like the one I played, a four-color control deck, City of Brass is just so valuable in terms of fixing and allowing flexibility, especially at all phases of the game, early, mid, and late. I had a match in the tournament against, um, against Espresso Stacks, where my opponent wastelanded or strip-mined me six times over the course of game one. This is game one, mind you. And I ended up in a scenario whereby I had no way to produce green mana because of the sequencing of lands of how I had fetched and how I had played them. I played myself into a corner such that I could no longer flash back the ancient grudge that was in my graveyard, which would have been infinitely useful. That kind of scenario is not the kind of thing you think of necessarily on turn one when you're choosing a land drop or on turn two when you're choosing what to fetch. 
but it is the sort of long-term goal that one needs to be prepared for, and it speaks to the scarcity of resources. When I'm playing that four-color control deck, my priority when I'm playing my lands out is that I have maximizing my access to City of Brass as late in the game as I can, because City of Brass is sort of a cure-all for any spell you might draw in that deck on turn 10. If you're holding a City of Brass and you draw any number of multicolored, not multicolored, but any color color of non-blue spell, yeah. you, you are safe. So what I'm getting at is you can prioritize your lands into tiers of sorts. Like you said, let, uh, run that volcanic out there and let it get wasted because it is not as important to your uh, your early to mid-game plan as an underground sea as in Grixis. Right, exactly. But that second volcanic island that you draw, that might be your last source of red, you need to prize that thing. Yeah. So it's important to note what colors are useful to you in the early, mid, and late stages of your game plan. Uh, Grixis control mana bases are designed such that you have uniform access to blue, of course, and you have on-tap access to red and black, to given certain ratios, usually two or three of each. But once a game has graduated beyond the first or one or two wasteland activations, those resources become very scant and very tight. And if you might only get one more uh, access to one more red mana in a game, you better well have access to that Valk when you're holding the lightning bolt you need, because those two things might not coexist after that point. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot to consider when making land drops, and I think the takeaway from this discussion, we, we have not exhausted what you can do with land drops, but I do think we have to move on. <laughs> I think we, this segment has already gone longer than we anticipated, but the, the key thing is treat your land drops as if they're spells. Give them that kind of consideration and give them that kind of attention, and be thinking about not just what's in your hand, but think about what might your opponent have to do to, do, to attack your land base, and think about what you might have in your deck that you might want to play with those lands. So just be be thinking ahead is, the, is I think, the key. Let's move on to some individual cards that are commonly played and have myriad options and considerations, the likes of which we've talked about for land drops. Our first candidate is the beloved Mana Drain. Now, Mana Drain is ubiquitous in the format, has been for quite a while. It's very well-loved by many players and hated by a few. And it has a lot of key considerations to be made because it has proactive and reactive elements and because it speaks directly to so many of the mana base choices and both deck construction and in-game that we've already alluded to. Mana Drain has single-handedly shaped vintage mana bases for more than a decade. And spells. I mean, there used to be a time where uh, where people didn't play expensive cells, spells, not because of workshops, but because of Mana Drain. Having, That's a good point. Yeah. There was a time when Mana Drain was one of the most feared things that you could do to a workshop player. Yep. Getting getting up to that critical blue-blue or blue-blue one that you needed to Mana Drain a smokestack meant the difference between getting locked out or turning the tide and overwhelming them. That's a very good point. But these days, Steve, Mana Drain is not the cure-all or the, the primary focus or goal of any deck's game plan, really. It has been relegated to a useful, still powerful effect that all blue decks don't even necessarily play these days. I think there's a lot to talk about with Mana Drain, and and we'll post a link to an article you wrote years ago that I think is still applicable about Mana Drain. But I think what I want to advance immediately is the central tension between in Mana Drain is the tension between countering a spell because it's really important to counter that spell and countering a spell 
because you want the mana from that spell and for for a tempo boost. Um, you know, if you if you go back and find the great articles by Brian Weissman, he'll counsel patience in using mana drain, and in fact, he'll say, you know, don't counter anything that you can remove with the with the Swords of Plowshares or a Disenchant. Make sure you save your mana drains for the most precious moment and the most <laughs> important spells. And and I think we've moved as vintage has become more and more like legacy a tempo format. We've moved away from that that idea, and part of that is because we've moved away from. I think there's two reasons. One, uh, control decks today have less direct removal. You know, you don't play with four swords and four disenchants. You'll play with maybe a couple bolts and a jace, some jaces these days, <laughs> um, and maybe abrupt decay. But the I think the other thing is that the tempo possibilities. Um, are so much more pronounced today that you can use Mana Drain to get a quick boost, to, to feed your Jace, to, to play a big threat that can just overwhelm the opponent before they can really do, any, do anything or say anything about it. Um, and um, um, the, the other aspect of this that I think is really important is that because there are more viable, high-powered counterspells than ever before, control decks tend to have a higher density of counterspells. So Mana Drain is not... Uh, quite as rarefied as it once was in that respect either. It's interesting. The tempo tension that you mentioned in the direction of the format is well made. It contributes to Mana Drain being a more accelerate card now than a reactive card in more ways than one. Because as spells in the format get cheaper, as counter, I mean, the median cost of yes. a counter spell in vintage these days is, is one. Fallen, yeah. Yeah. And that, <laughs> that's, I mean, that was not always the case. When Mana Drain was truly king, Mana Drain was the cheapest counter spell. Yep. And people's counter bases started at two mana. And now that's laughable by today's standards. You can have a deck that has fully ten counters that never pays more than one mana for one. But you could have ten counters that it costs zero. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, easily. And some decks might even be structured that way in the near future. But the the simple fact is is that Mana Drain is sort of the old guard of counter spells, and its purpose, as you just alluded, has shifted. It's an accelerant now, but because the format is so more much more tempo based, the notion that you could counter a spell just for tempo purposes is is something that players might not <laughs> it might not be intuitive to players that are new to the format or new to playing with Mana Drain. And it might even not be intuitive to people who've played it a number of times and aren't necessarily thinking ahead about everything. Right. Meaning planning ahead for what's the purpose. If if a player has internalized the function of mana drain or counter spells in general, as as Brian Weissman described it, if they've truly internalized it that way, is I'm not going to counter that Bob because I'm holding this lightning bolt. Yeah. They may miss out on opportunities to generate that, tempo to generate tempo that yeah. they're simply not used to, especially if they've been playing the format as a slow control player yes. for a long time. I think that's exactly right. Um, and and you know, <laughs> even back in the day, people would would mana drain often to fuel like a brain geyser or a stroke of genius, <laughs> which sounds funny <laughs> to say today. <laughs> That is pretty funny, but but honestly, it's not too the the three or four or five mana that you might have drained in the past to to brain geyser with now just goes into Jace. Yeah, yeah, it's not too too far removed from the two mana that you're draining now into to fuel the Jace. So how do you how do you tend to navigate that tension, Kevin? Do you does it depend on the deck that, that you're running and, and the situation? Do, are there any rules of thumb that you tend to use? It does depend on the deck. When I'm playing something that is combo control, like Grixis with Mana Drains, 
I viewed the mana drain more as an accelerant than in, in something like Landstill. In Grixis Control, I am definitely planning for the early win in as many cases as I can. And similar for the four-color control deck I played at Champs, I'm thinking about how can I tinker, how can I key vault. And it just so happens that Mana Drain, and part of the reason why it's still in the format, is very good at supporting tinker and key vault in addition to Jace. It just so happens, and I don't don't want to say this is coincidence so much as that's where we are now, is that the win conditions, popular win conditions in combo control decks play very well with colorless mana. Yes. So I'm viewing, sorry, so the short answer is when I'm playing a combo control, I'm viewing it as very much an accelerant. I would take an early opportunity to mana drain a bob because I know that I'm going to get opportunities to parlay that two mana into a victory. However, the flip side is when I'm playing land still, mana drain is one of the very few hard universal counters that's played in the format these days. Yes. And so I do tend to value it more as I can't, the way Weissman said, I can't deal with this effect in any other way than just this hard counter spell, yeah. so I'm going to do it yeah. now. Yeah, so so here's, another, here, here's I want to broach one more subject. I think we have a good transition here. Um, you've discussed sort of like when, uh, sorry, um, in what decks you, you're, how you use Mana Drain, but what about the question of when you use Mana Drain? And, and how do you differentiate between different phases of the turn in terms of Mana Drain uses? Well, are you referring to the manipulation of your own main phases? Let's because do let's, both and and all. So, so I mean, you know, some t- um, you know, you, you we'll link to this article that you wrote years ago on and Manadrain, but you know, not just the manipulation of your turn, but also the the timing of other spells that you have in order to sort of get your opponent to use Mana Drain at a time that you find to be opportune. So, for example, not just shifting first main phase to second main phase, which we'll talk, we'll talk about a lot, but, say, playing spells in your opponent's upkeep, mm-hmm. or your own upkeep, even, in order to get to use the, get the mana out of Mana Drain in your first main phase. Yeah, you're right. There are just tons of examples of all of those. So the first and simplest is simply you want to best control when you will receive the mana from Mana Drain. All things being equal, Mana Drain gives you mana, assuming it resolves. So you want to structure when you cast things on your turn that you might defend with your own Mana Drain such that you receive the mana either this turn or next, uh, as you see fit. That can be heavily influenced by certain cards, like if you're playing Landstill and you have Crucible of Worlds in your hand. That's the sort of situation where you might want to play something on your main first main phase such that in your second, you could cast a, a spell out of the colorless mana effectively for free. More often than not, though, I would say, is the moving to your second main phase. Very common, and something I cover in detail in the article you referenced, is the simple notion of going to your second main phase as a control player holding a mana drain, such that you maximize your ability to have your future mana drain mana in future turns if you don't have a plan for it right now. So, so, so the point is that you, you maximize the utility of that mana by giving yourself more options to use that mana. Yep, exactly. So if you don't have a discrete plan for it right now, as in this turns at second main phase, I'm going to cast this with my mana drain right. mana, then I, I would be a, a proponent of always moving to your second main phase and, and then proceeding with your turn. And part of the reason, part of the reason just to be, again, absolutely and abundantly clear, the, the fact that you play mana drain means that it, it's naturally tied up some of the mana that you would otherwise be able to use to play a constellation or other spe- of spells or other spells that you would be able to use more freely next turn. So, so, and, 
So yeah, an example of that would be like, let's say you have four mana in play. If you play Mana Drain, you only have two in your second main phase to play whatever other spells you have with Mana Drain. Whereas you would have maybe four or more next turn and the Mana Drain mana, which means you would have just more options. Yeah, exactly. Frequently, in the kind of combo control deck, you would benefit from having a large burst of mana because you're going to be defending or fighting over a, a big spell like a Jace or a Tinker, and this approach gives you the maximum burst mana at one time. Yeah, and you can distribute it across multiple spells that way. Too. Yes, exactly. So then the converse is true with regard to your opponent's mana drains. As you as you already alluded to, if you suspect or believe that your opponent has mana drain and they're representing it, then you want to play spells such that you are incentivizing them to cast mana drain at the worst possible times. Um, So if you read them as, let's say they have very low mana, they have just two lands in play, so they could very easily cast mana drain, but if they get the colorless mana, as you just alluded to, while their other lands are tapped, then they have far narrower options for maximizing it. So this is really next this is next level. Yeah, you might want to fight them in their first main phase such that they would have to tap those two lands and and subsequently get that colorless mana in their second main phase while those lands were tapped. Right, so they really can't use it. So it's, it's two sides of the same coin. When you're holding mana drain and you want to push that mana off into the future so it has maximal utility, you want to move into your second main phase. If your opponent recognizes this, they want to stop you from doing that. They want it's, to make you fight in your first main phase. It's two sides of yes. identical but different coins. And, exactly. And then there are other uh, corner cases, as you said. You might, and this is a, a subtle variation on the first two main phases, you may actually want to cast your own mana drain during your own upkeep, which very, uh, you know, it's hard to manufacture a scenario. Let's say you had a, a counter war on your opponent's turn where you both tapped out completely, uh, but you think they might have something that's very narrow that they didn't cast. They might have a, a misdirection. They might have a red elemental blast that didn't get used. But you want to do something big on your turn and use the mana drain mana, and it needs to be in your first main phase because it's, say, pre-combat. You need to do something during combat, too. Anyway, all these things can point to a scenario whereby you untap, play a key spell in your upkeep. It might just be a vamp tutor or some such. But then they start the fight. You mana drain on your upkeep. You get that colorless mana in your first main phase. It's all about knowing where you're going to have maximal utility for receiving that mana. Because you want a cutting wish for preserve. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) As long as fucking old school mana drain examples. Yes. And so I would add on to all of that, if, if you go read the article, you'll see that anyone who plays with Mana Drain should get into a habit, and it's a habit that I sadly recently kind of fell out of, so it's something I need to personally work on. And that is, if you ever have access to Mana Drain and you ever have access to two blue mana, I mean in a deck, if you're playing a deck with Mana Drains and you ever have access to two blue mana, you should never pass a turn without actively yes. declaring combat. We should we explain why and because and if your opponent does, let's explain how to exploit that. Yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> you are a mana drain toting control player, but you don't have one in your hand. It's you've just gone through all the deliberations we touched on earlier about which land drops you make. You played your fetch land on turn one to to remain flexible. Then you're not sure what your opponent's playing, but they played their own fetch land. So you're like thinking they have it. They're on a control deck. So now you've switched into not worrying about wasteland. You play your underground sea on turn two and you pass. Well, you've already made a mistake because because your opponent 
your opponent could say, on your first main phase, I'd like to play X. Exactly. And if you had a mana drain and you played it, you would get none of the benefit of that mana drain on your next turn. So by declaring your, your second main phase, you ensure that your opponent is unable to do that on your end step. Also, you put all of the onus on them to make an incorrect play. There, It may not be that there is an, an abstractly correct or incorrect play in this scenario, because it has a lot to do with bluffing, but by, by right. doing the proactive movement into your second main phase yourself, you put all of the onus on them to make the wrong play. You also It also creates a very strong bluff that you have mana drain. Exactly. And you always, and this is another way that you can maximize mana drains, either in hand or in library, you always want your opponent to believe you have the mana drain. <laughs> As a control player, you generally want to give the air of you have the best possible cards at all times and your opponent can't possibly resolve anything that they want to. <laughs> and, part of, and part of that is playing the part. Now, mana drain is one of the easiest cards to bluff in the, in the game because it's, it's just a direct tell by moving into your second main phase. But it's also the sort of tell that you should give at all times if you want your opponent to believe you have it. Now, you can be tactical about this, and you can strategically not do it at certain times to mess with them. And there's, there's reasons for that. But the simple truth is, is that you want to give the impression of strength at all times. So, Steve, we've covered ways to maximize Mana Drain. We've covered how, considerations for using it as an accelerant or a control card. What do you think about mistakes? What are some mistakes that people make with Mana Drain in your eyes? Well, um, a what lot should, of, what I, should our listeners avoid doing? Well, I think we've covered a, a, a number of the most important ones. Um, but I think, I think the biggest mistakes, or the most least consequential mistakes, come from either things that are, that are not related directly to Mana Drain or situate themselves on this key tension about countering the threat versus tempo. So the players who are too, too restrained and don't take advantage of a very powerful tempo opportunity um some you know that's a a critical mistake um i think that's probably the biggest mistake that i see uh, is failing to pursue a really juicy tempo opportunity um and that often can mean just winning the game outright um in favor of a more hard control role um but there are a series of mistakes that often occur around mana drain um you know (laughs) i'm thinking about that your your match at, in the Vegas Championship top eight where you drew had you made the right play with drain, with Jace you would have been you were Jacing in, into multiple mana drains and you ended the game with these multiple mana drains in hand I think it can be very difficult to value you know what is the value of mana drain at any given point in the game um, and what is its role you know had you used it more directly just to recounter had you used your mana drain to counter that that Tarmogoyf, you would have been, I think, you would have, I think you would have won that game. And you decided not to. Well, you're right, clearly, about that example. We covered it in last week's show uh, pretty well. I would say, to further develop your point about people misevaluating when to mana drain is... Just to be clear, though, what I'm saying is that I think the biggest mistake people make is not using mana drain when they should. Not rather than using it when they should. But go ahead. I see your point. I see your point. And related to that, though, is is understanding what the right mana drain targets are in a matchup also. Yeah. It, it, it's, it sounds like redundant, but I think it is subtly different from just counterspelling at the right time, but also understanding in this matchup, I have, let's say, Flusterstorm for this situation, I have Lightning Bolts for Jace's, I have 
spell snares maybe or spell pierces that are good against these things. I have mind break trap maybe, but I need mana drain to deal with X. And sometimes you just need to save your mana drain for when they play X. And ironically, in this day and age, that X is frequently Jace the Mind Sculptor. Mm -hmm. We've talked about a number of ways lately about how this overabundance of one mana counter spells all kind of have a blind spot when it comes to Jace. (laughs) You can't fluster storm him. You can't spell pierce him frequently. Sometimes you can. Uh, And so there's these situations you get into where you fan open a hand of three counters and none of them will apply to Jace. And sometimes Mana Drain is necessary to be that catch-all. But also I would say there's another risk that or, or, or error that people make, and that is planning ahead during Counter Wars. Counter Wars are still a common thing in Vintage. Mana Drain is key to them in addition to all the other cheap effects like Flusterstorm. And I think one of the keys is when you start getting the feeling you're about to start fighting a battle that might be multiple counters long, what role does Mana Drain play in that fight? And I, I frequently see people Mana Drain at the wrong time, partially because Mana Drain is more expensive than all the one-mana counters, so you can expose yourself to things like Flusterstorm and Spell Pierce, but also by doing what you just alluded to, which is not maximizing it and not saving it for the juiciest of juicy targets, which is Force of Will. Mm-hmm. Now that's a really important point. The, the point you're making is that another mistake that commonly happens with Mana Drain is targeting the wrong spell. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and it comes comes from understanding of what Mana Drain's role is in relation to all the other effects you have access yeah. to. This is less common today than it used to be, but it still it still occurs. And in I remember like when you play the Tog Mirror, you know, a decade ago, you'd often try and plan it so that the Mana Drain would hit their force of will. <laughs> Definitely. And another similar and related concept is hitting your opponent's gush. Mana draining a gush is such a it's such a positive yeah. EV move in your favor in terms of mana and cards, it's 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 unbelievable. It's so huge because not only are you denying them the the two card draw, but you're gaining five mana where they are gaining mana also. But you the five you gain is so much compared to the the one that they might gain from replaying a land. <laughs> it's just incredible. So anyway, it, uh, counter battles that may feature a gush in the middle to to draw cards and be a bait spell, for example, watch out for those as well. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our next and last vintage tactic for today. Let's talk about Vampiric Tutor. Cool. Now, Steve, isn't Vampiric Tutor just good because you go get the card you want? (laughs) (laughs) You know, in in doing these vintage classes, which were great fun, um, this was the other area that I think people really struggled with, which was tutoring. Even, even, you know, experienced vintage players uh, often don't know how to use these cards optimally. And and I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't seen their hands. You know, if they hadn't playing with their hands <laughs> face up, I wouldn't have really known what was going on. Um, and you know, it's sort of you think about like Tudor Dense decks. Remember Mean Deck Gifts, which was a deck that had the four Merchant Scrolls, and you they're they're basically I think uh, I think Kevin, we can we can we can say this fairly. They're basically a set of heuristics or rules of thumb that you use to you that you you apply to use these cards. So. Taking just the use of Merchant Scroll and Mean Deck Gifts, the first Merchant Scroll either found Force of Will or Ancestral Recall, depending on whether you were playing defense or wanted to go on offense. The second Merchant Scroll found Gifts Ungiven, usually, and uh, the third Merchant Scroll would, would, if not finding other gifts, would usually find like a Mystical Tutor to go to Yawgmoth's Will. So there's usually a sequence, and, and that's even true of tutors like Vampiric Tutor. Um, the Vampiric Tutor is really tricky. I mean... The, the thing is, once you have a list of heuristics, though, uh, 
you often deviate from it for circumstances. So I've vampiric tutored for basic lands before. You know, I've vampiric tutored for it seems like everything under the sun. I, just to take a, a more recent example, in our last podcast, we talked about when you vampiric tutored for mental misstep, you know? <laughs> So there are, there are oh, yeah. a lot of cards to, to find. But I think the key thing here is players need to have a really concrete sense in their mind of what are sort of the key cards you get. And let's talk about that. And the second thing is when you go for it. Because one of the errors wasn't just that people didn't know what to get or got the wrong card, but because they didn't know what to get, they didn't use it. So they would let uh-huh. turns go by, you know, where they could have used vamp, but they didn't. And they could have gotten real advantage of it if they knew how to do it. So let's let's start. I'll let you start. So what are your basic rules of thumb for just in a, a random vintage deck, let's say a Grixis control deck for using vamp or your keeper deck? Well, I think I like my keeper deck just because it's fresh in my mind. So with Vampiric Tutor in that deck, it serves, well, three primary roles. One, proactively end the game. Tinker, Time Vault, Voltaic Key, Jace, Yawgmoth's Will, one of those mm-hmm. things. Whichever one is the appropriate game ender for the situation I'm in. No, and that's a pretty common use for Vamp. Number two, that, that answers. Could be, that could be, you, you could also put Black Lotus in that list if you have like a Jace in hand. Yep. Definitely, definitely. Number two. Number two is Answers. That Keeper deck is filled with Answers. The one Toxic Deluge we talked about at length, that kind of thing, Ancient Grudge. Go get the card that's in the deck for that purpose, because it's the best card for that situation. That's another absolutely common use. And the third one, which doesn't apply to the Keeper deck so much as other decks, is just powerful cards. Vamp for Ancestral, Vamp for Jace, Vamp for, well, Yawgmoth's Will, but if it's not going to be a game ender still, Vamp for Yawgmoth's Will. Just get power, get access to your best restricted cards or the best powerful card for the situation. And that's usually if you're... If it's early in the game and you're and you're still jockeying for position, you want a powerful play. Vamp for ancestral is frequent, maybe not always best, but frequent. And and then in the late game when you're trying to make up ground on your opponent and you just want a haymaker, but certain game enders don't apply. Maybe you can't tinker or you don't feel like tinker because you you don't know what's in their hand. And maybe Yawgmoth's Will is not very good because there's not a lot of there's mostly counter spells in your graveyard that kind of thing. So you go get a powerful spell like a Jace or Ancestral in the late game too. I think those are some basic avenues for Vampiric Tutor, but as with everything, there are exceptions. Right. I think the I think the best example of an exception or something that players should avoid is the simple Vamp for Ancestral on turn one. That is sometimes called for and frequently probably not the best use. Say more. Well, for one, Vampiric Tutor is at its most powerful when the card you're getting is either ending the game or getting you a severe amount of card advantage, virtual or otherwise. So, for example, the Toxic Deluge play. Against humans, Vamp Tutor for Toxic Deluge can be a a 3 for 2 or a 4 for 2 in certain situations. Or if you get an answer, like an Ancient Grudge against Espresso Stacks, you're really hitting their strategy at its weak point. But in the mid-game, or I mean, the first couple of turns in uh, a Grixis Control Mirror, for example, or you're playing against Oath, vamping for Ancestral is technically card advantageous. You're getting three cards for two, but you're wasting two of your best resources, two of your most powerful cards, and you're also cutting off the power of Vampiric Tutor as an answer or as a haymaker later on for a moderately incremental advantage. Blue black draw three cards pay t- or draw sorry blue black draw three cards pay two life. It wouldn't even be draw three cards, would it? It's draw two cards pay two life. That's not a very good card. Uh-huh. We effectively have that card in Knight's Whisper, although it's not an instant. 
So you see the comparison with Ancestral Recall as compared to all the myriad other possibilities that, that Vampire Tutor offers, and Vamp for Ancestral is actually pretty far down the list. Yeah. But as a player who didn't know, say, my role in a given matchup, my preferred uh, role in terms of control or combo in a given control mirror, or just the best path for victory are my most powerful answers and how good they are. If I didn't know those things and wasn't immediately comfortable at recalling them in the given matchup, then I might default to something simpler and less good. <laughs> Steve, you have more experience than most with playing Vampiric Tutor and combo decks. So when you fan open a hand of your Burning oh. Tendrils, then Vampiric Tutor takes on a different meaning. It is meaning. magical Christmas land. <laughs> <laughs> but in that case, it's more like... It's more like the it's the linchpin that that ties a whole hand together. It's the thing that allows you to answer counter spells and get out of situations or build certain combos. But it's it's serving all those same roles, but it just feels so different. Vampiric Tutor can be a little bit like threading a needle. Playing it early is is can be just as dangerous as playing it late. It is waiting to play it, you know, because you want to have more options or more information. Mm. Um, Mm-hmm. In the combo deck, usually the Vampiric Tutor comes later than it does in the control deck because in the combo deck, most of your cards are already proactive. Whereas in the control deck, so in other words, what I'm saying is that in, in the in the combo deck, Vampiric Tutor has even more options. Whereas the sort of the key cards that you find in the control deck, you know, are are, are usually Ancestral Tinker, Yogwell, or one of the key, key vault combos. Sometimes a Lotus if you have a uh, adjacent hand, like if you're being one of the, in your proactive class, but in the, mm-hmm. in the combo deck, um, you know, you might vamp for a for a counter spell to protect a threat. You might you often vamp for Black Lotus to to accelerate out a threat or to allow you to play two threats, and you um, will sometimes f- go for a threat itself. I think the key targets in my my combo deck are probably Oath of Druids. Um, uh, Necropotence and a draw seven. Or a counter. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying in terms of threats. Yeah. Oh, I got you. Okay. So to parallel what you would find in like a Grixis control deck. So we've covered some of the use cases, but let's talk about timing. Yeah. Yeah. From a from a combo control perspective, because it is so frequently and so good at finding answers, then end of your opponent's turn is probably the the median casting point for Vampiric Tutor in general. Your opponent's end step. <laughs> yes. And to answer whatever they just did, or to once you see that the the path is clear, then you go for whatever proactive threat you want. You get your, you know, you fight through your opponent's turn. Maybe you countered their Jace, and you're feeling good about things. You feel that the coast is clear for your Tinker. That's when you go get it. But I would say that especially if you're playing a deck that has access to Jace, Brainstorm, possibly Sensei's Divining Top, all three of which are in the four color control deck I've recently played, then Vampiric Tutor suddenly becomes much more of a of a instant speed answer and or a main phase play and one should always be cognizant of yep. that there sometimes you said there's that magical christmas land feeling when you fan open a hand that has vampiric tutor you can get that same effect when you when you uh, brainstorm or top into it in the mid game during your turn and you suddenly have this myriad of options you suddenly the the, the gates open up and you and you can see all kinds of different different paths that weren't there before. The example that you used where I vamped for a mystical tutor, no, I vamped for a mental misstep, was because Vampiric Tutor allowed me to be a flexible, immediate, on-tap answer to 
whatever answer my opponent had for Key Vault. This was in my feature match in Vintage Champs. I had found a way to assemble Key Vault. I had top in play, which was helping me f- smooth out things, and I had Vampiric Tutor, which meant that as soon as I went for Key Vault, whatever type of answer my opponent had, in this case it was Mental Misstep for my key, I could Vamp Tutor for and top into in real time. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, you have to know, it's like switching gears as you used to put it from control into combo you have to know what your role is at any given moment and what card vampiric tutor gives you access to that is just the right thing for that moment yep there are some rote plays i I would agree aside from ancestral recall which you mentioned earlier you said vamp uh, you said black lotus which is a personal favorite of mine and i think of yours too because unlike Mystical Tutor, and the reason why Vampiric Tutor makes the cut in cases where Mystical doesn't, the ability to Vampiric Tutor for Jace and Strip Mine and Black Lotus is just invaluable. And Time Vault. And Time Vault, yeah, and Key, yeah. Just invaluable. That's why Vampiric Tutor was in my four-color control deck and Mystical was not. Wow. Now, there are a number of pitfalls with Vamp Tutor. The, the life loss is yeah. not insignificant, the timing vis-a-vis fetch lands and such. If there was any doubt about the how important being instant speed was and how valuable playing it on your opponent's end step or your upkeep was, think about how much play Vamp sees compared to Imperial Seal. Yeah, absolutely. Imperial Seal barely makes the cut in a few archetypes <laughs> in the long run, and Vampiric Tutor is just omnipresent. I remember the first time I saw a short butts player... I think it was Josh Reynolds the first time I saw it out in Richmond, Virginia. Before I met him, I remember you telling me that he reminded you of Rowan Atkinson. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, Josh. (laughs) But he was the first player I ever saw in a vintage tournament cast a Vampiric Tutor in a workshop deck. And, And... I think the clouds parted over my head and a whole new avenue of deck construction was opened up to me. The notion that you could play Vampiric Tutor in a workshop deck to find those critical few answers was just for some reason antithetical to how you constructed those decks at that time in my eyes. The card is is simply put just formative in the format and in a way that even its close kin like Demonic Tutor can't quite replicate. There are plenty of situations in Vintage these days where Vampiric Tutor allows you a certain level of either answering or aggressiveness that even Demonic Tutor can't replicate. You can Demonic Tutor for Black Lotus, and of course both of us have a number of times, but Vamp for Black Lotus on your opponent's end step in order to fuel a Yawgmoth's will is a whole other level of brokenness. I think, Steve, the, the pitfalls with Vamp Tutor, though, surround some of the things we've already touched on with regard to Brainstorm as well as Land Drops. Fetchlands being so omnipresent in the format can lead to obvious, simple play errors with Vamp Tutor, and I would imagine we don't need to describe how bad that can be. But there are a little more nuanced versions of that same issue that come up when you intentionally leave Fetchlands on the table prior to casting Vamp, because you really want to be very careful about the kind of things you you are... You're exposing yourself right. to. Why don't you? Vampiric Tutor, even on your opponent's end step, Vampiric Tutor off of a fetch land for an underground C still can expose you to wasteland in such a way that will undermine your plans. So even against workshop players, that first turn fetch land doesn't mean that you're going to have two mana on turn two thanks to your fetch land for underground C. So it's those kind of things that may seem obvious on the surface, but you need to watch out for. Think ahead about, yeah. Especially since Vampiric Tutor is on the short list of black spells that 
our instance in a common Grixis control deck. I suppose it's obligatory that I mention that, that Fastbond is a common card that is found with, with Vampire Tutor and Gush decks. And that is not only an advantage over Mystical Tutor, but it's also a very different usage because it means oftentimes vamping on your main phase and then playing Gush in response. Um, and I should also just mention a, a more broad consideration is that if you are the kind of person who is debating what to, and this I think will put a, bring us full circle and put a nice little bow on our entire uh, podcast. If you're considering which land to fetch out before playing uh, a brainstorm, you may consider the impact of what might happen if you draw a vampiric tutor off of your brainstorm, especially if you're brainstorming <laughs> on your opponent's end step. Very good. Yes, absolutely. And you're right. That does kind of bring us full circle. So we hope. I, I think we hope that our listeners enjoyed our discussion of these tactics and let us know if, if you did and we'll do more of them. There's a, a lot more to discuss. If there are particular cards, not necessarily just cards, but if there are specific cards or scenarios that you want to hear us analyze in this same way, just send us a note. This whole podcast was inspired by listener feedback such as yourself. So keep that in mind and send us those notes either via Twitter or email or comments. So this is our last podcast for 2013. Every year we give away, Kevin, last year we started our inaugural, we started a tradition of giving away Moxie Awards at the end of the year. So let's take just a few minutes to do that. All right, let's do it. If you recall, the categories from last year were the best new card, the best new set, and the best storyline from 2013. So let's start with what we thought was the best new printing for Vintage in 2013. Kevin, why don't you go first? Oh, I know mine, Steve, and it's the card that I just played in, in Eternal Weekend and was pretty pleased with, although it wasn't backbreaking. And that's Toxic Deluge. I think that card is huge. I think it's going to be a long-term staple of the format. It doesn't go in every deck, et cetera, et cetera, but I think it's here to stay. And I think it it's a card that's kind of future-proof. It's really good at answering future printings as well. And as things get worse and worse for us. But I really like Toxic Deluge. I think it's here to stay. And I think it's going to be a staple of answers in multicolor control decks for a long time. Well, congratulations to Toxic Deluge for getting a moxie. Uh-huh. It's hard to argue with that, but I'm going to argue with that. Go for it. You know, so there were a, this was kind of, a, I think, a disappointing year. We were on the lean side in terms of new vintage playables, wouldn't you agree? Oh, yes. So there aren't a lot of considerations, but there's Notion Thief. Um, there is... Uh, that uh, true name nemesis, um, certainly toxic deluge, but the card that I think had the biggest impact, um, and uh, I think will have um, probably the most appearances in the near future, at least, will be Young Pyromancer. Um, mm-hmm. Young Pyromancer got to second place in the Vintage Championship, um, and I expect him to, to be around for a long time as well. Well, it's hard to argue with that. The card has put up impressive results. We've covered it in detail. It's quite good, and I, I do agree that it's going to be here, at least for the foreseeable future, as a force to be reckoned with. All right, so let's turn to the best set. So our sets that were released this year were uh, um, Gate Crash in January and, in, in Feb- and uh, fully released in February, uh, Dragon's Maze in April slash May, um, M14 over the summer, Commander, and most recently Theros. So Kevin, what was your set of the set of the year? Well, it's not because of Toxic Deluge only, but it's more along the lines of 
creating the most interesting conversation with the fewest cards, I think that the commander set was best this year. And it's it, again, it's not just individual cards even, but I think it's the fact that this product line has continued, the fact that it's a way for them to introduce eternal-focused cards that they don't feel like introducing into standard, and just the kind of the whole package. I hope that Commander is an annual or semi-annual release for quite a while because so far the two releases we have of it have introduced very interesting and powerful cards into vintage. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I also give my Moxie Award to, to Commander. Commander uh, did not disappoint this year. The only disappointment was that we weren't able to get a Commander decks. <laughs> <laughs> so that, in that sense, I guess it did disappoint. But, uh, well, but that was a disappointment that was bittersweet because it provided so much goodness. It provided for a lot for us to discuss, that's for sure. Hopefully that won't be repeated again in future <laughs> eternal weekends and releases. All right, and that brings us to our final Moxie Award category. What was the biggest storyline of 2013 in regards to vintage? Do you want me to go first this time? Yeah, why don't you go first? Okay, I thought the biggest storyline was the success of Agro Control on the in the Vintage Championship, culminating in the really stunning victory of Joel Lim with Merfolk. Um, and I have a feeling, and, and I think, you know, Agro Control dominated the entire year. It won the Bizarre Moxon. It won both Bizarre Moxons and the Vintage Championship. And we saw really Agro Control decks of multiple stripes, Rug Delver, Bug, Tempo, and Merfolk just really doing so well. I think that's the biggest storyline of the year. Kevin, what about you? That's a good one. Don't get me wrong, and we're going to be talking about it for some time to come into 2014. But I think the biggest story for us, our community, and our listeners was Eternal Weekend. From beginning to end, the failure of Wizards to communicate well on it, the ultimate scheduling and organization by Nick Koss and Card Titan, and then the subsequent success, in my opinion, in our opinion, of the event and the stage that it sets for future years. Vintage Champs is the flagship of our show in terms of our coverage and our discussion, and for the community, for much of the community, it's just the flagship of every year, and this Eternal Weekend is huge. It was it had its ups, it had its downs, failures and, and successes, but overall, it was definitely the biggest story this year. Yeah, I think, I think the second biggest story, in my view, and I would broaden it slightly, is the sort of reorganization of the premier vintage events in the United States by, by both Nick's, Nick Koss and Nick Detweiler. The NYSE Open, I thought, was really, really big, and I think Eternal Weekend is part and parcel of that. So the, the vintage community taking control of the marquee vintage events, I thought was the second biggest story of the That's year. That's a good one, and it's it's a good portends well for the future, I think. Yep, looking forward to 2014. So there are Moxie Awards for 2013. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening, both to this episode and all year long. We want to hear from you. What do you think was the biggest story in your mind for 2013 for vintage? We want to hear your feedback. As always, you can tweet us, many insane plays. Email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, and until next year, we wish you many insane plays. We get to <laughs>